Hello, hello, and welcome to another exciting episode of Skeptics and Seekers Sunday Sermon. This is 4S. I'm David Johnson. Let's get started. A recent Reasonable Faith podcast by William Lane Craig has YouTube atheists saying, See, I told you so. I think that you can begin to fathom what it is I'm going to be talking about today. Yes. Today, we'll be talking about William Lane Craig's blunderous answer to someone who wrote into his podcast. I think that William Lane Craig did a terrible job at answering that question, and a lot of other Christians do as well. So it's not just skeptics. But I, I thought that I would do this by showing you a video done by a Christian rather than a video done by skeptics so that we can see their side of it. Also, what I mostly want to do is talk about Kyle's question. In particular, I want to put my Christian hat on and provide a better answer because it's so easy to criticize what someone else said, to criticize what Dr. Craig said. And I do believe that that answer is his undoing. I honestly do. But that's not really my main focus today. In fact, I wasn't going to originally show this video at all or any video. I was just going to do a, a podcast only featuring my attempt to answer Kyle. But after giving it more consideration, I decided that it wouldn't be fair to people who are just coming on to this subject. Maybe they have not heard uh, the entire question and answer. Maybe they heard some rumblings of what was going on. Maybe someone comes upon this 10 years from now when no one is talking about this. And this is still on the Internet. I need to at least show... Uh, the question, the answer, some of the immediate reaction to it for that reason. So we can't just assume that everybody knows what's going on. All right. But that said, I'm putting this video up here. I hope that this thread gets filled with videos and video clips of this. So every instance of this, there is a video out there where Kyle himself is uh, on a show with other Christians. I can't find it it's somewhere uh, on the Skeptics and Seekers boards, but um, I can't find that video now. But if someone finds that, please post it in the comments. Post every video of this uh, in the comments so that we can see every angle of this, everyone's reaction to this, everyone's attempt to deal with this question, this situation. Because I do think that in our small world of apologetics, this is significant. And so after not wanting to really deal with this issue at all, considering that there are so many smarter people who have dealt with it already, uh, I finally decided, yeah, okay, there is something that I can add to this conversation that I'm, that I'm not hearing. And so the thing that I think I can add to this conversation is I'm going to offer better answers. Yes, I'm a skeptic, I'm an unbeliever, but I was a Christian once upon a time and uh, and a leader in the church. And so I do believe that I can offer better answers than what 
Bill Craig offered. And I invite you in the comments, no matter which side of the aisle you happen to be on, to not just offer criticisms to what Craig said, but based on your understanding of the Bible, what do you think a better answer would be? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you three. But that doesn't cover the spectrum of the better possible answers that could be given. So if Craig, uh, uh, Craig, Kyle, if you happen to be watching this, you can know that my section toward the end of this, where I give three better answers, I genuinely hope that helps you. I'm not, uh, I'm not some radical skeptic counting coup and trying to get as many people to give up their faith as possible. That's not actually what I do. My parents are people of faith, and I, I don't want to see them give it up. I think that faith is very important to a lot of people, and I think it would, uh, to, to lose it causes major disruptions in your life. I know that it did for me. Now, I think you're ultimately happier on the other side of it, but you've got to come out of it in your own way and in your own timing. So I'm not trying to rip people away from their faith. I'm having this conversation with people who are strong enough in their faith to voluntarily engage in this kind of discussion. And, uh, you know, if, if people come along who are looking for answers, maybe they're on the bubble, you know, I'm going to give them that. I'm not going to pull any punches. But this isn't an attempt to exploit you, Kyle, and I have no desire to exploit you. In fact, if you want to come on uh, this program and provide uh, your own assessment of the situation, you are welcome to do so. And uh, I mean that sincerely. Okay. So that said, let's go ahead and dive into this video. I don't know this Christian's name who's doing this video. I'm sorry. It doesn't matter. Uh, internet apologists to me are just internet apologists. But I found this to be maybe the best of the responses that I that I saw, and uh, it's highly approachable. It's not too terribly long, so we will deal with that first, and then we'll go into my answers. Let's let this uh, play out. Today's podcast, William Lane Craig admitted something that I didn't think that any Christian would ever actually openly admit. And in this recent podcast that William Lane Craig did, I wasn't shocked so much by what I heard. But what I was impressed by is how much he just lays his cards out on the table. So, okay, I will tell you, I was shocked because I thought I uh, knew William Lane's uh, Craig's theology pretty well, and his his full throated endorsement of Pascal's Wager, uh, which is uh, not featured so much in this video, but in other videos. His full throat endorsement of Pascal's wager took me aback. So um, if it's uncool to be shocked by what he said, I guess I'm just uncool because I was shocked. So what are they reacting to? It's the answer to the following question. And hello, Dr. Craig. I've enjoyed your ministry and it's helped strengthen my faith over the years, but I have recently been having troubling thoughts in my mind. My trouble is that one of the things about Christianity is that it requires a lot of work to follow. In order to follow Christ, you have to orient your entire life around him. Christianity is not just a set of propositions that one holds, but it's a faith practice, a way of life. Okay. So a lot of Christians, including uh, Craig here, 
has glummed on to this idea and said that, oh no, Christianity is not a lot of work. It's actually the easier path. And, you know, you could point to passages of scripture like, uh, come ye that are uh, laden with heavy laden and I will give you rest. Uh, and so they would say, no, it's just the opposite of hard work. But I would say that those people are people who never read Jesus. They've never read the gospels. They are unfamiliar with the red letters. We've been talking about uh, the things that Jesus said in uh, my Patreon project, Red Letters. You know about it by now. You can go to patreon.com slash redletters. It's a dollar a week, essentially. It doesn't actually work out uh, to be a dollar a week all the time because there are some weeks that I don't do shows. Like right now, I'm in a break between season one and season two. We'll pick up season two sometime uh, near the beginning of January. And so this is actually a perfect time for cheapskates. This is this is cheapskate month right here. You can go in, sign up for red letters, pay nothing because I'm not doing uh, podcasts right now on the channel. You can listen to the whole year of podcasts if you just want to cram it all in. You can pick up uh, my book. Red Letters, A Closer Look at the Worst Practical and Moral Teachings in History. You can pick it up absolutely free. Download the ebook, enjoy, and then cancel your subscription at the end of December, and you will not have paid me a single dollar. Wow. What a deal. I don't think that you're a jerk for doing that at all. You, you, should, <laughs> you should take advantage of it. Well, you can and see what the buzz is about. Get in there. Uh, hold uh, some conversations with some of the people. We've kind of moved the conversations over to uh, discuss, but uh, those forums on uh, Patreon are there and have been there for most of the year. You can be a full participant in the program without paying anything. Now, I think that once you start jamming through some of those podcasts, you're going to want to stick around and see what uh, we have in store for season two. I've had a sneak peek into season two. I know a guy. It's going to be awesome. Okay. So um, thank you uh, so much for doing that. That's patreon.com slash red letters. Thank you so much for your support. Uh, as I was saying, we have been talking about the ministry of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus. And one thing is abundantly clear. Jesus is one of the most demanding religious gurus of all time. He didn't just demand anything. He demanded everything. Everything. The, the things that his disciples had to give up included all of their money, homes, family, uh, commitments, everything. Everything. So, if you're taking Christianity seriously from Jesus' perspective, it's extremely demanding. Now, in all fairness, uh, this particular Christian commentator recognizes that, and so I want to give him full uh, credit for that. But you will see online a lot of Christians saying, no, you see, Kyle is fundamentally wrong because Christianity is not a, a, a demanding uh, belief system at all. Uh, and I, I would, I wonder what brand of Christianity they think they have that that comports with anything the Bible says. It, according to Jesus Himself, 
Christianity is extremely demanding. With that in mind, wouldn't the smart thing to do is require very high epistemic standards before one decides they will dedicate their life to Christ? If you're going to live for Christ, then wouldn't it be smart to actually meet Jesus Christ in person or even talk to his mother, Mary? Or Okay. Um, meet Jesus, talk to his mother, Mary. This, These are a couple of things that Kyle offered as epistemic standards. I think that Kyle is Catholic uh, because only a Catholic would say, you know, talking to the mother of Mary would be some kind of proof. No one is asking to talk to the mother of Jesus. Um, no one is asking for that, except maybe a Catholic. I don't understand why. So maybe someone with, with some Catholic um, background, Brian with an eye, I'm looking at you. Maybe you could tell me and the audience why an appearance from Mary would be some type of evidence for Jesus and his divinity. You know, I I just don't because Mary, she's just she's just a woman. We wouldn't recognize her anyway. So how would we even know that we're dealing with uh Mary? But if even if we could know that it was Mary, we don't know that she had any children. There's no way to prove that she had a child that was uh, from a virgin birth. Uh, if she had a child, even one from a virgin birth, there's no way to determine whether that child was God or not, whether they were divine or not. It's just that maybe, you know, God chose to bless Mary with a child in the same way in the Old Testament. He cursed women uh, to not be able to have children. Right? And um, Mary wouldn't be the first person that, you know, God blessed with a child who shouldn't have normally been able to have a child. So I don't I don't know why that would be evidence. I mean, if it's evidence for Kyle, that, I mean, he's free to ask for any evidence he wants. But that that one's a strange one to the Protestant ear in appearance from the Virgin Mary. I, I don't care. That wouldn't that wouldn't do anything for me. An appearance from Jesus. Yeah, that would help. Once again, there have to be some way that we knew that we were actually talking to and seeing Jesus. I'm not sure how you do that, but I, I think you know if you can manage that, that would that would help. And I think that this is a reasonable ask. I think we're going to get back to this throughout the course of this video. But another thing that you have heard other Christian commentators say, including William Lane Craig, is your standard is too high. You're asking for too high of a standard. No wonder your faith is weak. And I would respond, have you read your Bible? This is not too high of a standard. You could ask for way more than this and still be within uh, the, the expectation of people in biblical times. So I don't know what Christians are talking about that this is too high of a standard. I think the that by saying this is too high of a standard, they are admitting that their Bible stories are garbage nonsense, that they really don't believe that God could pull something like this off. And so they're saying, your standards are too high for my practical God who likes to hide in the shadows and remain unfalsifiable. <laughs> you know, so um, I actually have a, a real problem with what Christians are saying about these 
standards, other than the fact that I don't understand why Mary would be convincing to anybody. I, um, I don't think that asking for an appearance of Jesus is too high of a standard. Like I said, we'll get back to this, but, uh, yeah, let's put a pin in it for now. An angel. I know you often mention the witness of the Holy Spirit as a way that one can... By the way, an angel? Paul seemed to think that angels could communicate with people when he told the Galatians that though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel than that you have received, let him be accursed. Even an angel from heaven couldn't preach another gospel than the gospel that they had received from Paul. They could never... Paul could never change his message. He could never say, oh, you know what? I've studied more. I was wrong about that <laughs> because um, that he's, he's told the people under no circumstances are you to listen to any other gospel. And one of the things that he said was, if an angel from heaven teach you any other gospel, let him be accursed. Okay. Okay. But that's Paul saying that an angel from heaven could appear. And so when Kyle says, you know, maybe an angel from heaven, that seems to be perfectly reasonable and within the expectation. Again, we'll get we'll, more about this. Have direct access to God, but I have done meditative prayer and deep meditation for years upon years, and nothing has come up in terms of God speaking to me directly where I know it wasn't just my own imagination. Many of my fellow Christians have had similar concerns on this. Okay, this is also another important piece of the question. What Kyle is asking for is something that can be validated outside of his head, outside of his imagination, all right? We all have imagined that we've seen things, you know, weird things that can't be explained. UFOs, I've had a UFO sighting. Then again, I have really bad vision, and there are all, I know an awful lot about vision and the kinds of tricks that your eyes and your brain can play, all right? So um, I haven't had any kind of sighting or alien encounter that would not qualify as being a part of my imagination. Nothing has happened in a way that I could show was outside of my imagination, right? And so Christians prefer the kind of evidence that could be synonymous with just your imagination. And what Kyle is saying is, I need something more than that. I need something more than my brain or my eyes or my uh, auditory senses playing tricks on me in a way that I can't even confirm to myself. I think this is extremely astute of Kyle to acknowledge that our senses can fool us and our emotions can fool us. And Kyle is saying, yeah, I need something that can be confirmed outside of my own biased, lying emotions and imagination. Would it be that more Christians had enough integrity to ask for that. Also, this is perhaps my biggest struggle, and I cannot seem to get it out of my head as it is causing me to abandon the Christian life because I cannot have high epistemic confidence that Christianity is true, Kyle, in the United States. 
Kyle cannot have high epistemic confidence. There's nothing that has happened in Kyle's life that gives him high epistemic confidence. You can talk about the inner witness of the Holy Spirit all you want, and Craig will. But Kyle is coming from the perspective of a Christian who has never had that. Whatever that means, it tends to go undefined. Whatever it means, if it's a confirmation that is, in fact, distinguishable from his imagination, Kyle has never had it. He's never had a convincing experience as a Christian. By the way, I didn't either. I haven't spoken to many ex-Christians who have. Who knows? Maybe that's why we're ex-Christians. We didn't have it, but we sought it. We wanted it. We listened to every still, small voice we could conjure in our heads. We, we did all of that. We prayed. We fasted. We did all that. Well, I was never much of a faster, but you know what I mean. <laughs> we did, a, we did a, a lot. To find this, to, to hear this, to have this confirmation of, of God in some way that was distinguish, distinguishable from our imagination. We didn't get it. Kyle didn't have it. And so this is a part of his question. He is laying this out to William Lane Craig. This is where I am. I don't have enough evidence for high epistemic standard. And I feel like I need more evidence to be convincing to my own self. Can you help me? All right. That's the question. I believe Kyle is absolutely correct about the cost of discipleship being high. Jesus definitely didn't play games. He told his prospective followers to count the cost before they followed him. So I think he's right in the sense that we should have high epistemic standards if we're going to commit our lives fully to him. But should the standard necessarily be Jesus has got to appear to me? Uh, no, not really. More on that in a minute. So what was Dr. Craig's response that had YouTube atheists running triumphantly to their cameras to tell the world that the emperor has no clothes? When I first heard the message of the gospel as a non-Christian high school student, that my sins could be forgiven by God, that God loved me, he loved Bill Craig, and that I could come to know him and experience eternal life with God, I thought to myself, uh, and I'm not kidding, I thought, if there is just one chance in a million that this is true, it's worth believing. First of all, let me just say that I have a tremendous amount of respect for Dr. William Lane Craig. To me, he's an intellectual hero and one of the reasons why I got into Christian apologetics in the first place. And I completely agree with him that the gospel is absolutely fantastic news. If we can have forgiveness with God and eternal life, then that's absolutely fantastic. But if the chances that Christianity is actually true is just one in a million, is it really worth believing? I say, hold up, wait a minute, something ain't right. And so my attitude toward this is just the opposite of Kyle's. Far from raising the bar or the epistemic standard that Christianity must meet to be believed, I, I lower it. Um, I think that this is a message which is so wonderful, so fantastic, that if there's any evidence that it's true, then it's worth believing in. If 
there's any evidence that it's true, it's worth believing in. Dr. Craig, are you including bad evidence? You know, because that's evidence, right? Uh, if there is, con if there's one piece of convincing evidence that it's true, I would agree with you. But it, it doesn't seem like you're talking about convincing evidence or good evidence at all. You're just talking about anything, any reason to believe at all, because it's such a wonderful thing. So here's the thing. There, there is evidence for pretty much every worldview out there. Christians would reject most of it and say it's bad evidence. So I don't think that they would say if there's any evidence that Islam is true, you should believe it. Because for Islamists, they believe that the message is so life-affirming, so good. It's such a pleasing message to them. It doesn't matter whether it's pleasing to you. It's pleasing to them. Then if there's any chance at all a one in a million, I understand that's a colloquialism, he's not talking math here, but, you know, a one in a million shot that it's true, and even any evidence at all, and it makes you feel this good, then it's worth believing. William Lane Craig, you can't leave the door open for this kind of response that wide. Especially when you compare it to the alternatives, like naturalism or atheism or... Okay, so again... <laughs> Christianity, the message is true, uh, or sorry, the message is pleasant compared to the alternatives. Well, once again, that's your opinion. That's your opinion about what is um, pleasing. So I understand that for you, Mr. Craig, Christianity is more pleasing than naturalism. But for me, naturalism is more pleasing than Christianity. So would you say that if naturalism is more pleasing to me, that if there's any evidence it's true, then I should, then I should believe it? The uh, Islamist would say that Islam is more pleasing to them than Christianity. So they would say, you know, especially, it, it's better, especially compared to the alternative of Christianity, you know, or Satan worship or, <laughs> or some such, that has absolutely nothing to do with whether you should believe it other forms of life. Did you hear what you just said? When you come to Christianity, you shouldn't be looking to raise the bar. The God who invented truth, the God who is synonymous with what's real and what's true, don't raise your epistemic bar for God to meet. You put it on the floor. You lower it. William Lane Craig just said he literally lowers the bar as low as he can. And if that's the bar that his omnipotent, omniscient, all-powerful God can clear, good enough for William Lane Craig. Now, I know a lot of atheists are going to hate this, but I tend to agree with Dr. Craig when he says that life is meaningless and absurd without God. Right. And I, I appreciate that. That's not really the discussion that we're having right now. You know, we'll see if uh, the debate between Marvin and I happens on the subject of meaning. Hope it does. Uh, he's been doing a lot of discussing uh, that in the latest thread so we can kind of preview our arguments a little bit but we do have at least an agreement in principle that we'll have that discussion but it's irrelevant um so i'm not going to engage in that right now i would just say you're wrong 
or what I would say is, eh, okay, to you, that's, that's your opinion. You think that life is meaningless under a natural, under a naturalistic perspective. Okay. I don't actually need to change your mind on that because I don't care. It has, it has no bearing on how I feel about meaning. So I can say that naturalism is more meaningful than a life under Christianity. And, and you don't care. <laughs> so not, just, just making these declarations offers nothing as far as determining whether or not we should believe Christianity. If each individual person passes out of existence when he dies, what ultimate significance can be assigned to his life? Okay, why do we need ultimate significance? Just putting that out there, um, there is plenty of temporal significance, local significance. And, and if you don't think that's ultimate significance, that's fine. But why do we need ultimate significance for there to be some significance? Just because the consequences of atheism are undesirable, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't learn to live with it if that is where the evidential chips fall. We can't lower the bar to where we would say, if there is just one chance in a million that this is true, it's worth believing. In response to this, some atheists are saying that Craig is resorting to Pascal's wager, or at least some crude version of it that they heard on YouTube. When he was in high school, he basically Pascal wagered himself into Christianity. Pascal's wager. Take Pascal's wager. And Okay, to, to be fair, William Lane Craig absolutely said it was Pascal's wager. All right, so in some of his follow-up to this, um, that that is in fact what he said. So yes, he Pascal wagered himself into Christianity. They take the wager to be a junk argument. Now, I'm going to leave that discussion to philosophers who are a whole lot more intelligent than I am, but allow me to present to you what I think is a much more defensible alternative. Right? Okay, I wrote about this a little bit in my write-up, but I couldn't remember the name of this argument or the person, um, and so I apologized for that. I'm not going to go back and edit the article with this information in it, but this is what I was referring to uh, if you read the article before watching the video. In a century after Blaise Pascal, the English philosopher and theologian Joseph Butler wrote The Analogy of Religion, which has long been recognized as one of the masterpieces of Christian apologetics. Here's philosopher Tim McGrew teaching about Butler's alternative to Pascal's wager. And we owe that argument our most careful attention, weighing up carefully both the positive evidence and any objections we may encounter, remembering, and this is a very interesting point, that a mistake on one side may be, in its consequences, much more dangerous than a mistake on the other. That's a direct quotation. And it's fascinating to compare and contrast this with Pascal's wager. Pascal's wager says that even in a case where the evidence is balanced, it might be reasonable to cast your lot on the side that gives you the biggest return and that gives you the fewest risks. That could be a prudent decision in business. Pascal does not think that the evidence is evenly balanced. He thinks that there's a good deal of evidence for Christianity, but as a sort of thought experiment, he does this bit of decision theory. Well, note what Butler is doing and how it's different from what Pascal does. Two things. First of all, 
Butler filled out more completely than Pascal was able to do before his death the nature of the arguments which, in his view, made Christianity likely, probable, commended to a rational mind. But second, he says, suppose that you have only an imperfect understanding of it. Suppose that you see only enough of it to think to yourself, you know, that might be true. Then you have a duty, not of belief, but of inquiry. And the duty of inquiry runs like this. If knowing that there is something to this evidence, that it can't just be dismissed, you nevertheless refuse to look into it any further, then you are taking great risks that you don't need to take because you could inquire further. And nothing can excuse you if you fail to do that inquiry. So it's different from, and I think in some ways more defensible than, the version of Pascal's wager at least that is most commonly discussed in philosophy classes. So I would like to christen this Butler's Wager. So yeah, the gospel is absolutely fantastic news. Huge amen to that. And atheism is a pretty hopeless looking worldview. So if there is some evidence, we should look very deeply into the topic and not just believe it on a one in a million shot. But if you watch Apologia's response to Lydia McGrew's case for the resurrection, I can't really say that he has, at least at the moment. What advice? Okay, I think that is a terribly unfair assessment because what we're going to see is, you know, a person stumbling over the exact terms that Lydia uses for her argument. That doesn't mean he's unfamiliar with the argument. Would you guys give Apologia if he tries to go for a a second round here um, at actually actually try the reading the things you're going to criticize before you criticize them. It uh, it does wonders for you. And while I really like Derek for Myth Vision, I'm not so sure that he's familiar with the case for biblical reliability either. Um, Lydia McCrew and uh, the McCrews that are uh, Christian oh, apologists, uh -huh. Uh -huh. and they're they're definitely above, like in terms of the, the they're smart, very yeah. But I mean, at the same time, I'm not trying to be overly critical. I'm just trying to point out that they have these ideas, what they call um, uh, it's like a coincidental. Uh, what are they? It's kind of a harmonization. Okay, sorry, go ahead. No, 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 it, it's, it's something in the vein of um, uh, undesigned coincidences. There you go. I think if you have a charitable bone in your body, it should be pretty obvious that Dr. Craig believes that there is good evidence for Christianity. It's just not the reason why he personally believes. If Kyle really knows what it's like to experience the love of God and to have this hope. In Let me stop you right there, Dr. Craig. Kyle has already said he doesn't really know that. He does not. He's, he has not had that experience. So you, at this point, are strawmanning. You are not answering the question that was asked of you. Eternal life and forgiveness of sins, then it, it seems to me that he will um, gravitate toward that alternative. It would be so attractive and that it would take really, really decisive disproofs to make him give up his Christian faith and abandon it. So raise the bar for disproofs. 
lower the bar for positive proofs. Now, when I talk about the witness of the Holy Spirit, I don't mean God speaking to me directly in the way Kyle describes. God doesn't speak to me directly either. Okay, so what is the witness of the Holy Spirit? Will somebody please answer this question in a way that other people can understand it? In that sort of way, as an inner voice. But I just mean a kind of fundamental assurance that one's faith is true. A fundamental assurance that one's faith is true. Everyone who has faith, by definition, has that, regardless of what it is they have faith in. So it's got to be more than that, Dr. Craig. Um, people often talk about this as the assurance of salvation, and I think that is the privilege of every born-again Christian. Uh, it's the privilege of every religious person who has faith in their basic tenets of belief, Dr. Craig. So I hope that Kyle is more than just a nominal Christian, that he's really come to experience the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. So if you haven't had some kind of experience, then you're just a Christian in name only, Dr. Craig? Is that what you're saying, Dr. Craig? And that he's indwelt and filled with the Holy Spirit. Indwelt. And what the hell does that mean, Dr. Craig? Um, because I think then that that removes the, the huge epistemic a bar that he thinks you need to get over in order to become a Christian. So if you've got the spirit indwelled in you, whatever that means, then that removes any other epistemic bar. How do you know you have the spirit indwelled in you if you haven't had any experiences that you can't distinguish from your own imagination, Dr. Craig? Here's the thing. This is not at all news. Dr. Craig has been saying this stuff for years. And similarly, I would say with respect to the witness of the Holy Spirit, for a person who's come to know God in a personal way, it's not just kind of like a warm, fuzzy feeling. It's not like that. It's more like the reality of a personal presence in your life that wasn't there before. Okay, it's not a warm, fuzzy feeling. It's the reality of another presence in your life. What does that reality feel like? Dr. Craig, how do you know that you are experiencing another presence, Dr. Craig? For me, it was like somebody turned on the light. For you, it was like someone turned on the light, a flashbulb kind of moment, which is an extremely common experience for everybody at some point in their life regarding lots of things that don't have to do with religion, Dr. Craig where there was darkness before. And I just have no reason to think that this is delusory. You don't have any reason to question that at all, that a, a common light bulb experience must by necessity mean that God is present in your life. Is that what you really think, young Dr. Craig? It, it, it's almost, I, I've called it a self-authenticating experience that- Well, it, okay. It's a self-authenticating experience in that you took it to mean something that you can't validate outside of your own imagination. Kyle is asking for something more than that, young Dr. Craig. The person who, who has it knows. Craig shares it. The person who has it knows what? It knows that you had a light bulb aha kind of moment? Okay, 
you have that moment. Like I said, everybody has that moment about all kinds of things that don't have anything to do with religion. How do you know that that moment is the presence of the Holy Spirit? To view with noted philosopher of religion, Alvin Plantinga, who in his book, Warning Christian Belief, argues that religious belief can be rational without any appeal to evidence or argument. Now, this view definitely has some very intelligent people who defend it, but I personally don't subscribe to it. Thank you, internet apologist. While I believe that I've experienced the Holy Spirit on several occasions in sharing Craig's subjective assurance, not every Christian I've met has this experience. Many haven't. My colleague, Dr. Jonathan McClatchy, is one of those believers. On his blog, he writes, I know that I certainly don't have any such experience to speak of, and I know plenty of Christians who would say the same thing. I, of course, don't deny that in exceptional cases, God could make his existence known to someone in a manner that warrants belief. But as I said, I do not believe that is God's normative modus operandi. He also shares a concern about Craig's view that I share, namely that other religions claim similar experience. Quote, it's not at all clear to me how one would reliably distinguish a mystical inner witness of the Holy Spirit from the testimony of the Mormon who says that God has shown them that the Book of Mormon is scripture because they experience the infamous burning in the bosom. I don't believe anything in scripture indicates that it's the Holy Spirit's job to provide any such mystical experience. The verse is typically quoted to support this is Romans 8.16, which says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. However, in context, this is talking about the fruit of the Spirit, which is necessarily born in the life of the believer, thereby confirming that we are indeed born again. It has nothing to do with a mystical affirmation that Christianity is true. Scripture consistently appeals to evidence to establish this, such as predictive prophecy and the resurrection of Jesus. Furthermore, I think oftentimes Christians can confuse an implicit rational warrant for belief in Scripture, which is based on public evidence, with some sort of mystical inner witness of the Holy Spirit. For example, one might have an inarticulate sense of the power of the whole case for Christianity without realizing that it is, in fact, a rational response to a cumulative case argument. Now, I know that Dr. Craig has responded to these concerns in the book Reasonable Faith and in other places, but I don't find them compelling. To explain why would take a much longer video. All right, so how would I answer the questioner's problem? Well, I agree with Dr. Craig that Kyle should lower his evidential standards. He shouldn't need an angel or Mary or Jesus to appear to him in order to feel like he has good evidence. But others, namely the apostles, have had Jesus appear to them, and there's very good testimonial evidence for that. Okay. So, I kept saying that I would get back to this. I think this is where I'm going to jump in and get back to this. Well, at least uh, Mr. Internet Apologist and I have some modicum of agreement before he goes off and ruins it. Um, the Bible is full of this kind of evidence. When Jesus approaches Peter, the one who would become his chief apostle, not Paul, by the way, Peter, Jesus at least does some fish magic before asking Peter to join him and become a fisherman of men. Uh, no need to go over the, the fish magic. Um, I, I could talk about that for a little while. I don't believe it happened. Um, there are naturalistic ways I could go about explaining it. Uh, if you wanted to say that it happened in, in some historical way, it's irrelevant. The important thing is, Peter 
had for what was Peter a veridical sign that Jesus was who he said he was. All right? That's all other people are asking for. In fact, if you break down the sign that Peter got, what he got was a really good day at his job. Right? Because catching fish wasn't just about eating fish. It was about selling fish. And so this is something that Peter could turn into money and resources for his family. All right, so he got a really good day at his job. So it seems like if you were, say, oh, a writer, I don't know who writes for a living, but if, if that's what you did and you had a pile of articles stacking up in front of you and a deadline that's coming closer, it seems like you could ask Jesus to give you super speed where you type a thousand words a minute and you get it all done in a single afternoon. That seems like a, a very similar thing that Peter got. And, and you can change that to whatever, you know, your job looks like. That would be reasonable. But Christians would say, no, that's unreasonable. And yet that's, that's where Peter was. Paul was on his way to persecute some Christians, so the story goes, when Jesus knocks him off his horse and starts talking to him. Right? That's, that's an appearance of Jesus, at least a visionary appearance of Jesus. So when Kyle asks for an appearance of Jesus, I'm sure he's thinking, well, that's one of the ways that Jesus did it. That, that's perfectly reasonable, it seems, for Paul to get this. But suddenly it's unreasonable for anyone else to say, okay, I would like that too, please. When Jesus showed up to his disciples, there were only ten at the time, because Thomas was off doing something, probably getting food, because the others were too chicken shit to leave the, the room. Thomas, probably a bit more practical-minded. Jesus shows up, and he immediately shows them the holes in his hands and his side, so that they could have proof of who he was. Thomas comes along, and says, oh yeah, so that happened? Well, I want to see it too. I want to see the same evidence that you saw. Thomas did not ask for some other kind of evidence. Something that the others would say, ah, that's unreasonable. He asked for the exact same evidence that they got. And Jesus shows it to him, but he chides him for that. And he says, you know, it's better for people to believe, you know, who don't have evidence. All right, but Thomas actually should be our hero. Thomas and Kyle are in the same camp because what Kyle is asking for is the same evidence that we see throughout the Bible. And this is part of the problem when your holy book is filled with magical nonsense because it leaves the expectation that 
okay, if this is what the others got, if this is what the original believers got to believe, and they were way more superstitious, and so they would believe on less evidence, why shouldn't I at least get that same evidence? Okay, that's a problem for holy book religions, where your holy book is filled with magical nonsense. It's also a problem with uh, magical nonsense preachers who talk about the power of miracles and, you know, Jesus making appearances in magical ponds and curing crippled people or, you know, whatever, whatever the magical nonsense is that's preached week after week after week. And so it's very natural for someone like Kyle to come along and say, okay, well, if, if Jesus is still doing all of these amazing, miraculous things that gives people the kind of confidence they need, I, I would like that too. That's perfectly reasonable in Christianity, given the Christian message of the past and giving the Christian message of today. It is a perfectly, absolutely reasonable request. And so the people who are pushing back and saying, no, that's not reasonable, you shouldn't be asking for that, are themselves being unreasonable and I think unfaithful because what they're really saying is that's too much to ask for God to do because in their hearts, they know that there's no God who does those things. They know it and they don't want it falsified by having a bunch of people ask for it and not getting it. And so what they do is attack the person and say, you're, you're making an unreasonable request when everything about that religion says the opposite. It says that is a perfectly reasonable request. Skeptics like Apologia, I think, tend to raise things to an unnecessarily high standard. I mean, just look at this tweet. He says, I'm not saying miracles are impossible. I'm saying that I could never be convinced of one from testimony alone. That the witness is lying or mistaken is always going to be more probable. And hearsay increases the problem exponentially. This, of course, is just warmed over David Hume rearing his ugly head. No, it's not. It really isn't. Uh, people can believe that without knowing anything about David Hume. And you know why we can come to that conclusion? Because we are surrounded by people who are lying about things all the time or who are mistaken about things all the time. And so when those people say something fantastical, you know, they saw a ghost last night in this haunted house. We can look at them and say, look, you're either lying or mistaken. That's the most likely thing. And Christians would agree with that. But when it's the Holy Ghost being cited, then suddenly we're supposed to believe it on the basis of testimony. But as the 19th century philosopher and mathematician Charles Babbage said, if independent witnesses can be found who speak the truth more frequently than falsehood, it is always possible to assign a number of independent witnesses the improbability of the falsehood of whose concurring testimonies shall be greater than that of the improbability of the miracle itself. Hume's so-called everlasting check fails since a cumulative case can in principle be adequate to overcome the intrinsic improbability of a miracle, thereby being sufficient to warrant belief. A cumulative case built of bad evidence is just a case with a lot of bad evidence. If a miracle happened in the past, what I want to know from a skeptic like Polygia is, how could they know that they were wrong? As far as I can tell, there is no way. 
he and skeptics I'm sorry, how could you know they were right? As near as I can tell, there is no way. Like him, have dug themselves into an epistemic pit, so to speak. Instead, like Butler suggests, we should carefully take our time and ask ourselves, what exactly are the Gospels? What are their authors like? What is their relationship to truth? And we shouldn't just take the arguments from proxy from biblical scholars, but actually take the time to examine both sides of the case. You don't need to lower your epistemic bar to a one in a million chance of this being true in order to believe it. When properly examined, I think that you will find that the evidence for the claims of the resurrection of Jesus can clear a very high epistemic bar. The God of all truth has not left us without witness, and he's absolutely worth committing your life to. Okay. Well, there we go. Um, I feel like I should just stop the podcast right here and do the thing that I was originally doing in a supplemental, but that's not going to happen. I made some coffee before this podcast and I left it in the other room and I really wanted some. So I am going to go through the rest of this podcast. I invite you listeners to maybe hit pause, take a bathroom break, get the cup of coffee that I'm not going to have. <laughs> and uh, let's go ahead and dive into the next part of this. And I'm going to make this brief. Uh, this is the topic of my write-up. What I try to do, as I suggested up front, is not just to pick apart the answer that was given. That's easy. Right? That's low-hanging low fruit. And those who listen to this show know that I don't just eat low-hanging fruit. I, I like to challenge myself a little bit to do a little bit more, do it a little bit better. And this is a heavy challenge because I've got to find my Christian hat, dust it off. It really feels more like a crown of thorns when I put it on. Um, and I'm going to try to answer Kyle's question from a Christian perspective, as if he asked it to me back when I was a Christian. And so I'm trying to be faithful to the best answers I would have given at that time. So answer number one that I would give to Kyle, I'm giving these in the order of worst to the best. The worst answer I can give is just keep investigating. You remember uh, back in the video when uh, he was talking about Butler's argument? Butler was the one who came about 100 years after Pascal. I agree with him that Butler's argument is better than Pascal. That's better than um, the argument that William Lane Craig gave which is rather than believe on the basis that, you know, it beats the alternative, you should withhold belief, but not withhold investigation. So if there's one in a million chance of it being true, you have a duty to investigate it. All right. That's a very different thing than saying you have a duty to believe it. And since Kyle is already a Christian, 
but he's having doubts. Then you can kind of modify this answer and say, well, you need to investigate those areas where you're having doubts. You shouldn't just accept your doubts at face value and then leave something that might be a very good thing for your life currently and in the future. You owe it to yourself to investigate further. All right. This is still a bad answer. All right. I just want to be clear. But it's better than anything that Craig said. Let me tell you why it's not such a good answer. Some of you probably already have a hint of why I think it's not a good answer because you heard Dale and I uh, debate his uh, his his eleven premise um, idea of real seeker theology. All right, and it and it's very interesting. I could maybe cite other academics on this, but I think that Dale has actually put in more work and he has a, a better formulation than other similar ideas that I've read. So uh, it seems only right to give Dell some credit here. Uh, but Dell and I have argued about uh, his premises a lot. We don't agree. I just want to be clear on that, but I just want to cite him because I think he's done better work than most. Uh, one of the things that we don't agree on is something that I'm not entirely sure I even understand about his premises. So if I state it incorrectly, uh, Dell is, is free to write in. I will put his correction uh, in the notes. Uh, I'll highlight it so that everyone can read it. But my problem with Dell's formulation and with the advice I just gave is there seems to be no mechanism in it to conclude your investigation with a negative result. So there's no way to say, I've, I've looked into it, I've investigated it, and I find that it is not believable, and therefore I don't believe. It seems like every time you get to that point, what you're met with is someone saying, well, you need to keep an open mind and look at new evidences or evidences that you haven't yet uh, discovered. And they can then just ask, are you sure you've heard every argument? Have you thoroughly explored every evidence? Of course, no one can say yes to this. So the obligation, whether spoken or unspoken, explicitly or not, is that you have to keep investigating forever until you get a positive affirmation of the faith. And you can never end your investigation with a negative aff affirmation of faith. Now, you can end your investigation positively. So you can say, I've investigated it. I've found uh, the truth uh, that Christianity is true. And therefore, I'm going to declare for Christianity. That seems to be okay. But there's no way to do the opposite as near as I can tell and say, okay, I've investigated it. I've ended the investigation and it's negative. If you ever end the investigation, then you're accused of not no longer being open-minded and therefore you're not a real seeker. <clears throat> this is a trap. The investigation trap, right? It's, it's something that you must always do. And here's the thing. If you devote your entire life to investigating a religious idea, 
you are almost by definition an advocate of faith in that religion because it requires some great deal of faith to keep investigating it ad infinitum. That is not actually a reasonable or a rational thing to do, in my opinion. There must be some point, some way where you can end the investigation with a negative conclusion. And various formulations of this, this real seeker idea don't seem to allow for that. But I, I have another problem uh, with this idea too, and that is that you have any epistemic duty to investigate at all. So uh, you heard the um, internet apologist, as he's describing Butler, say that you have a duty to investigate, not necessarily a duty to believe, but you have a duty to investigate. And I, I would challenge that. You do not have a duty to do anything. There are lots of things in the universe that are true that you don't know because they haven't been fully investigated and they certainly haven't been fully investigated by you. You do not have an epidemic duty to study it. Superstring theory could be true. You do not have a duty to spend your life studying superstring theory. You don't. There might be a cache of gold you know, less than 10 miles from your house. And if you struck gold, you could do all kinds of wonderful things for the world. You have no epistemic duty to follow that up <laughs> and, um, and investigate it. And in the same uh, way, there might be not just one God, but thousands of gods out there. There seems to be at least a modicum evidence uh, of evidence for many gods, in the same way that there would be for one God, do, do you have an epistemic duty to seek out those other gods and keep an open mind? Christians don't seem to think so. So why on earth is there some kind of epistemic duty to seek the Christian's God? You see, you're already approaching it from a position of faith and worship almost by by giving this god the credit for being worthy of investigation by giving this religion the credit of being worthy of investigation no one has yet explained to me why i should care about christianity or the christian god and they certainly can't give me a reason why I should care about that God as opposed to other gods. So I think that this is a bad idea disguised as something that sounds reasonable. Just keep investigating. It is, in fact, just a bad idea. And you should demand more. Okay, second best answer I could give. Kyle, this should be easy. This should go quickly. Pray and fast. Hey, Kyle, I don't know if you're the kind of Christian that fasted. I wasn't, but there are a lot of Christians who uh, do fasting and think that that's pretty important. So great. And every kind of Christian that I know thinks that prayer is, is pretty important. So uh, I would just ask, have you prayed about this? Have you fasted 
over this? Have you uh, taken some time to consecrate your life and address this issue, super serve this issue? Because if not, uh, you should start with prayer and fasting, and, and you should not treat this as if it's the least you could do. In many cases, it's the most you can do, and it's extremely powerful. It's extremely effective. So by all means, pray and fast. Did you notice that in all of the videos, I haven't seen one anyway, and I, and I feel like I've seen them all, but there may be some that I haven't seen. Please post in the comments. Of all of the videos that I've seen anyway, I have not heard Bill Craig suggest to Kyle that he should pray. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? Furthermore, I have not heard Bill Craig offer to pray for Kyle. The first thing that he should have done when he got this question was say, okay, Kyle, I, that's a very important question. Let me pray for you right now, because it sounds like you're having a crisis of faith. Let's bring God into this. Let us pray. That should be, that should be a reflexive thing that, that a Christian would say and do. You know, it's like the trial lawyer that is asleep in court and he suddenly wakes up and says, I object. <laughs> because it's probably always fairly appropriate to object when the other side is talking. Uh, it's a reflexive thing. Prayer should be a reflexive thing. And Christians, I haven't seen Bill suggest it or do it for Kyle. I, I just find that interesting. I don't want to judge it overly much, but it's a, it's a thing that I would observe. But of course, telling a person to pray and fast is also not really good advice because this is a person who feels like they are in a religion that they cannot validate with evidence. For all we know, Kyle might feel somewhat religiously abused. So we don't know exactly what's going on and what's behind these doubts. We do know that Kyle is looking for veridical evidence for his issues. And the go-to thing for most Christians anyway, would be to say that you need to immerse yourself more in the religion. This is what a cultist would say too. <laughs> you need to immerse yourself more into the life of the religion, not less. So get on your knees and pray. You know, if you if you if you've done that, go into a closet and close the door and pray. You need to intensify it. Did you fast for a weekend? You need to fast for a week. Did you study your Bible for two hours this week? You need to study it for ten. It's to it's to in, immerse yourself even more. Did you attend service one time? You should have attended at least three. So uh, that, that becomes the advice, and the advice is ultimately uh, our power and hold over your, your mind seems to be slipping, so give us more access to your mind. That's, that's kind of the upshot of this advice. And so as a result, I don't much care for it at all. But even if Craig didn't tell him that you need to pray and fast and immerse yourself more into the religion, Craig still should have offered prayer. 
In fact, arguably, arguably that should have been his entire answer. He didn't do any of that. All right. The third answer that I would give is the harshest one, but I also think it's the truest one. I think it is the one that is best defended by scripture ultimately. And I, and I've already cited scripture where maybe, maybe there, there's some argument about that, but I think ultimately the best defense for this kind of thing is to say his grace is sufficient. When Paul goes to Jesus three times in prayer and supplication, he says, please remove this thorn in the flesh I have. Each time Jesus says, no, my grace is sufficient. I think that has to be the answer for the modern, modern Christian, because what we know, and you either know it deep in your heart, or, or you just know it at the surface of your brain, is that none of the, the magic garbage in the Bible ever happened. And so the Bible actually has to address people who are expecting that magic garbage to happen. And so Paul says, yeah, you know what? Going to God to miraculously heal you of something, you know, maybe he will, maybe he won't. But what you really need to take away from it is that his grace is sufficient. I really think that's the message of Paul. Uh, when John puts the words of uh, into the mouth of Jesus, where he, he tells Thomas, better to believe uh, without evidence, I think that's because in John's community, some of the people were saying, well, okay, where's the evidence? I mean, if Jesus did so many works that the world could not contain the books, if uh, all of it was written down, okay, then I would like some of that evidence too. Jesus says that uh, you and the people who come after me will do greater things than I did. It's perfectly reasonable for people to say, okay, where are those greater things? And so we have to have Jesus saying, you know what? Forget all that. It's better to believe without evidence than have all of this evidence. I think, I think at the end of the day, that trumps all of the miraculous stuff. At the end of the day, his grace is sufficient. At the end of the day, in our weakness, he is strong. And faith really only becomes heroic when you don't have a pile of evidence to back it up. So Jesus called for communities of faith. It is faith through grace that saves us. And so it's not sight and evidence that saves us. We walk by faith and not by sight. So when you are feeling like your faith is weak, what you should be asking for is not more evidence. What you should be asking for is more faith. Because that is the only currency in the kingdom of God that matters. You know, if your faith is based on evidence, then it is always being buffeted 
by the winds and the storms. And if your evidence isn't very good, then there can be counter-evidence to that. Your faith is very fragile, and it's always subject to the next piece of counter-evidence that comes along. But if your faith is actually faith, based on faith, through grace, and if that grace is sufficient for you, there is no amount of counter-evidence that can ever shake it. Because your faith wasn't based on evidence in the first place. It's based on something given by the Holy Spirit put into your heart. What on earth do you think is powerful enough to take that away? So if you are looking at evidence and counting on evidence to be the thing that keeps you planted firmly like the tree that's planted by the waters and you shall not be moved, if you're counting on external evidence for that, then you need to pray for the kind of faith <coughs> that allows you to stand despite the counter evidence that Satan can conjure. Okay. I know all that sounds um, very culty. Sounds very culty to me. It is bullshit. But I've always said, even as a Christian, evidentialism is a dangerous thing. Jesus didn't uh, teach his disciples about things like shrouds and empty tombs and such. He didn't teach his disciples how to overcome objections. In fact, when he sent his uh, disciples out two by two, he didn't teach them to argue about whether Jesus was God. He also didn't teach them to do miracles at the door so that he could convince the, the person on the other side of it to let them in. So we don't know exactly what the opening line was, but Jesus says, look, uh, your spirit goes out to them. If they, if it finds reception there, then go in and stay. And if it doesn't, just move to the next door. That's it. That's it. So it's a miraculous work of faith doled out by the Holy Spirit. At the end of the day, that's all you got. And if that's not enough for you, then Christianity may not be the right thing for you. I think at bottom, Christians know that this is the right answer, but they're afraid of the answer because they're afraid of how many more people would just walk out the door. Conclusion. Okay. Just a few words here. There's no satisfactory answer. Okay. This is, this is the real problem to, uh, of, of Kyle's question. So Kyle, if you're listening, I'm not, I'm not blaming you for this. I'm just trying to explain why one of the greatest theologians of our time couldn't answer your question. There is no satisfactory answer to this question. I happen to think that I'm a greater theological mind than William Lane Craig. And even I can't come up with a question. I've got time to think about it. So part of the problem is your question is not a question. Not really. I know it's put in the form of a question. 
but it's not really a question. It's more of a statement. It's kind of your trial balloon that you're putting out there, that your faith is weak, and it scares you, and you're reaching for something to make it strong, but it's weak right now, and you need support. That's really what you're saying. And the reason you're putting it in a form of a question is because you know that as a Christian, if you just come out and say that out loud, you would be badly abused by people. Well, guess what, Kyle? You're being badly abused anyway by, by Christians. So you can't really spare yourself from that. But I understand why you would put it in the form of a question. But it's not really a question. It's a statement. It's a realization that a lot of us have come to, which is, you know what? My faith isn't based on anything as solid as I would like it to be. And, and I need to find a more solid, a more firm foundation for it. We have all been there, Kyle. And so the first thing that I would ask you to do is maybe rather than put this in the form of a question, just make it as a statement of the reality where you are right now and see how Christians respond because they frankly haven't responded well to the question. So I think a, a, a more straightforward approach would be better at the, at the very least, it rips the bandaid off a little bit quicker. So the problem with Craig's answer is that there is no answer. There is no answer to the statement that my faith is weak and I feel like my foundation is not firm. There's no answer to that, Kyle. Craig can't do it. So in all fairness to Craig, he's doing the best he can. I think that he could have done better, actually. So maybe it's not the best he can. Maybe it's the best he could at that moment. But as I've said before, even my best falls short. And, and I've had time to think about it because there's no answer to that. The fact of the matter is when we believe improbable things, there will most likely come a, a point in our life where the weight of that improbability is felt. You know, at some point, kids feel the weight of the Santa Claus story on their shoulders. You know, when they're six, it doesn't weigh so heavily at all. It's a wonderful story and they want to believe it. And so they do. When they're 12, that story is really heavy to bear. They feel the, they feel the weight of it and, and they get tired of climbing Mount Improbable all the time. You begin to question that. So there's no way to, to take that weight away. The only thing that an honest Christian, I think, can really say is, I understand what you're feeling. I've been where you are. Uh, I will pray for you. I want you to go on this journey. This is a part, your doubt is a part of your faith journey. If I can answer any questions directly, you can use me as a resource, but you need to follow your investigation and your heart and your relationship with your God in the most honest place possible. And I hope I see you again. And I hope that you remain a, a part of this faith family. But if you don't, I still love you.
and that's not going to change. That's what Christians should say. They can't say it. They can't say it. Furthermore, people like uh, Dr. Craig, people, uh, Christians who are evidentialist apologists, can't say it. Because, in essence, that would be to admit that their life's work is futile. That there really isn't any compelling evidence. So they have to answer your doubts with evidence. They can't answer your doubts with charity and patience and understanding. Evidentialists are, are usually the wrong people to go to uh, with your doubts. So, all right. We've heard Dr. Craig's answer. We've heard my three answers. Now it's your turn. What's your answer to Kyle's dilemma? How do you answer a person who finally plucks up the nerve to admit that they are having serious doubts about their faith? It doesn't matter whether you're a Christian or not. How do you answer this? Let me know in the comments. Skepticsandseekers.squarespace.com Skepticsandseekers.squarespace.com Log into your Discuss account and discuss away. And I will see you in the comments. Bye-bye.